Hello friends, how are you? My name is Jude and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. So today, my guest is the Olivier Award winning director, Miranda Cromwell. She started as the young company director at Bristol Old Vic Theatre and has since then directed at the Bush, the Soho Theatre. Recently, she won her Olivier for the collaboration she did on the incredible death of a salesman, which started live at the Young Vic, which incidentally is one of my favourite theatres in the entire world. She's also the artistic director of Twisted Theatre. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. Being creatives, being an actor and a director, we get into it on this podcast uh, about performances, encouraging performances, nurturing performances, the role of a director. I personally found it fascinating. I love talking to Miranda. So here it is. Welcome, welcome, Miranda. I want to just start off and ask you how you are. <laughs> what a question for the for the, <laughs> lo- for the lockdown three. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I've been saying yes <laughs> in yes. answer to that question. Yes, uh, <laughs> I. I am. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I found this one quite tough. This third yes. lockdown's difficult. Um, so I'm just like I'm maintaining like a kind of equilibrium by cycling. I've been cycling a lot, um, yeah, that. and that has actually been amazing because it's like I've always been terrified of the roads. So yeah. the roads at the moment are like quiet and you can actually cycle really far around London and it's completely deserted. So that's been yeah. quite weird, but I've actually really enjoyed it and found some freedom in that. Yeah, it's been the best best time for people to start cycling in London because as you say, it's, it's, uh, there's barely any traffic and, and you, know, you, can, you can get up quite easily. And the uh, Tate at the moment, they've just extended... Um, that Diwali light show, the Tate Britain, uh, which is absolutely oh, wow. spectacular. So definitely a route to check out. Um, okay, because, I will you know, do. Yeah, that sounds great. About this time when the light starts to fade, those um, those neon lights look uh, look amazing. Cool. Well, um, I'm going to assume a few, a fair few people, you know, who who aren't actors or or in the industry who who might give this a listen, will will be ignorant of what a a director does. In a rehearsal room, and and what I'd love is is for you to demystify it um, for for us to talk about that, um, and and in your opinion to mm. to talk about what the role of a director should be in a rehearsal room. Okay, cool, good question. Um, yeah, well, I didn't know what a director was for a long time, uh, even <laughs> while I was uh, <laughs> even while I was at university studying theatre, which is crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I still didn't really fully grasp it and it wasn't until I started teaching actually that I realised that the young people that I was working with 
um, were going to want to put on some sort of show and that probably as their teacher, that was probably up to me to like facilitate that in some way. Um, <laughs> so that's really how I, I began directing, which was quite bizarre in lots of ways. And, and so I, I sort of came to it discovering on the job really all the things that needed to be done and now when I I try and um prep sort of new directors I I fundamentally say to them well what you've got to think about is the sort of the if you imagine the press night and by press night what we mean is the day where all of the audience and probably reviewers for the show and the point at which you're going to leave the production and your job is going to be done as a director the show is going to have to be safe. <laughs> it's going to have to be like blocked and sort of choreographed in some way so that it, it is the same show pretty much every night. When I say pretty much, I mean, you've got live actors on stage and <laughs> making all kinds of new decisions all the time. But there yeah. are some fundamental things that need to stay the same. So pretty much where the actors are going to be in the space, which also dictates like how you light the space and where the lights are going to be, um, where all the sound cues are going to be, and that you have kind of got to a place where they know the text inside and out. They under have some understanding of their relationships and their characters. And really you've got through an entire kind of technical rehearsal period where you, the director, has had to make lots of decisions about what happens when and where. <laughs> so it's fundamentally a kind of like a, a, a long string of decisions that starts when you first kind of read a play and you decide to pursue it or you have an idea or a theatre approaches you with an idea for something. Uh, and then you basically continuously make thousands of decisions until the point that you reach press night so you're really responsible for maintaining making often and forging relationships with different creative teams so the lighting designer sound designer choreographer fight director intimacy director I mean there's so many now uh, if you've got live music your musicians your relationships with your actors, you set the rehearsal schedule. The, one of the key relationships is with the designer and um, that starts really early on for me in a process of figuring out what the whole thing's going to feel like, what's going to be on stage with those actors, what kind of world it's going to be. And then um, organising that whole process with your stage management team so that you get to press night is basically the gig. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody dies and you make something that people um have some sort of visceral response to I think for me I feel like theatre is a provocation it's a way to like feel somebody else's sh shoes and see the world through somebody else's perspective ask some questions of where we're at now enjoy a story um kind of be challenged by some of the ideas in it hopefully and the big thing for me I suppose of what I think a director should be the role should be is to facilitate that space so that everybody can do their best work mm. and 
and hold that space for people so they feel safe but also part of feeling safe is that they trust you that you are looking after that artistic output so you are really balancing it and making sure that it it can be the best that it can be and everybody can do their best work and be a really clear communicator I suppose for both everybody in that room but also ultimately for the audience who connect with that story your job is to communicate that story to them in the best way wow I mean I feel like um a kid in a sweet shop I've got so many <laughs> sub questions that have come out of that quite glorious answer to, to what is a director um from the perspective of dyslexia but also in terms of you know being a creative myself I mean essentially from all of that you're you're still facilitating children for a show is that, is that what you're telling me <laughs> yes basically it doesn't really change it doesn't change yeah. that much it just gets a bit more complicated <laughs> exactly with, with a few more decisions to make than uh, you anticipated uh, <laughs> yes, and, and less behaved, less well-behaved participants. <laughs> yes, exactly. Grown children, you're trying to herd, herd cats. Grown children, actors into you know, um, not bumping into the furniture and saying all their lines. Um, okay, I mean, you know, I want to get into how it is. You've talked about this. You want to get to a space that's completely intuitive for you as a director. You know, so you're, you're free. There's a there's a degree of freeness when you're when you're working with your actors. So how do you achieve that freeness um, as someone who would be uh, neurodivergent, um, dyslexic? Um, what is that like for you? So you want to your your goal is freedom with your actors in that room. So I'm assuming you can empower them to to make choices, to explore, um, to need the text. Um, how do you get there given um I'm, I'm assuming you might have some trouble sometimes you know with a text yeah I mean it's been a big journey for me because I never used to really engage with text that much when I was younger I think because I had undiagnosed dyslexia I just assumed that it I just couldn't do it in the same way that other people could and and everything that I wrote was kind of rubbish <laughs> in terms of the way that it was graded it was always like yeah this doesn't make any sense or you haven't put any punctuation in or yeah. you know it's not structured it it doesn't make any yeah but the fundamental thing kept coming back of like it doesn't make any sense um which is really frustrating when it makes sense to you right <laughs> Uh, yeah. And you don't quite know how to translate that to other people. And um, I think for me, I was really lucky in lots of ways because when I was at university and I was able to explore things um, more physically through dance and choreography and through like getting things up on its feet, I I really realised that my connection to kind of theatre and the spoken word um, was my way in to... Mm text actually and that it kind of came alive to me in a way that then I could start to see it differently on the page partly and partly um navigating the things that are just a gap I suppose between the way I see something and the way somebody else might see something is recognizing that and a lot of the time for me now I don't have before I was really embarrassed about kind of going I've looked this through and I can't see any mistakes. I can't see anything like 
wrong with it and then somebody else would proof it and they would say oh but look at this and look at this and look at this and now I just go well that's that's great isn't it I know that I need somebody else to do <laughs> to do that before I said <laughs> before I send it out to the actors you know and yeah. I suppose it's like recognizing the things that you can do and the things that you can't and before I would always try and like cover them up or hide them or work really hard silently behind the scenes and then it would still be wrong and I'd still feel really frustrated and kind of embarrassed but now I just own it and I go do you know what I've actually tried that three times and I can't it's obviously my dyslexia which means that I can't see what that is so let can somebody else look through this for me great and and I've had brilliant relationships with associate directors and stage management for that reason too because you know some people are just their minds are brilliantly organized in that way and I suppose in terms of actually making free space for the actors I've actually found my my dyslexia I suppose a bit of a blessing because because I have to find other ways around sometimes to understand something or to make it make sense often in a more physical way up on its feet through an improvisation trying to get to the heart I suppose psychologically of what's behind the words in order to start to really communicate those words in a way that I fully understand them maybe means that I'm more thorough and playful in another way with just what our basic what is our basic understanding of what is happening because mine is different to yours and I believe that fundamentally we all have a different understanding of the same thing. And a lot of the time we assume that everybody is getting the same information, but they're not. One of the beautiful things about theatre is that you can communicate that in different ways. So you can communicate that same idea through the design or through movement or, you know, through music as well as through the words. Yeah. Well. I mean, I want to. I want to tell you that you're not only part of uh, the dyslexic community, but as a dyslexic, you are considered part of the blind community as well. Oh wow! Um, I did not know that. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, word blindness. Um, so it's so interesting you talking about you know how you perceive words, um, and then you're you know you're checking things through, and you just you just don't see it, and and you, or you see it in other ways. And incidentally, you're now I think our fourth or fifth um, female guest on the pod and every single lady we've had was undiagnosed um dyslexic always suspected um but didn't uh was never tested for it i mean there's myriad reasons for that but um it feels like it's part of you know women often mature um before men do and they develop workarounds for yeah uh for things quicker than men do, you know, emotionally and in, in the classroom as well. But then there's also an element of, you know, what's acceptable for women um, versus mm. men. You know, men can act out and, and they often did, you know, if if, if they feel like the class is passing them by, they become the cl- class joker and distract. Whereas, you know, uh, women socially, it's not acceptable or, you know, wasn't acceptable mm. for them for them to do that. And then there's also copying to, not only am I a woman, but by the way, I'm also... I have a disability, um, mm. which I find sad and fascinating as well. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's fascinating as well because you just, I never, I suppose even now, it's like something that I just 
like you said, I, I think you just find workarounds with it. So you don't even like until I was really thinking about it for this um, conversation and realizing, oh, actually, there's so many different ways in which it affects how I do things. But yeah. I've just got used to it. <laughs> so I don't really see it as I suppose I don't see yeah. it as a disability. And I suppose I don't see it as something um I, f- I forget often that I'm doing things differently to po- maybe the way people who don't have dyslexia would do things. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we just had a really fascinating conversation with a guy called Ross who invented, he's invented a tool for um, dyslexic people, neurodivergent people, people with um, uh, visual impairment um, so that they can change the colour text on their computers and um, so they can have websites read back to them, which oh, is wow, fascinating great. in terms of um every every single person regardless of whether you're dyslexic or autistic or not um you can read up to 25% better with a a certain color for for Ross oh, wow. it's yellow yellow with a mm. blue font change and he was saying something quite fascinating which I'd again as you say you just you just take it for granted it's just you just on some level you think this is everyone's shared experience right and he was saying mm. quite a feature of dyslexic people is to be able to recall things from memory um vividly mm. i mean i know we as artists can say well is all memory a lie um are we not really remembering the emotion around the event you know are we recalling but no i, I i'm i'm dead certain i can go now i remember when i was four and i remember where you were standing when you said this and this mm. happened um and and also he was saying a feature is is uh is emotional sophistication, a level of empathy, which is uh, which is more heightened than other people. I don't know whether those are things that, that you share, but for me, those were things I just assumed everyone everyone had them right. Or I assumed as an artist, I was like, well, if you're an artist, then invariably you have a heightened sense of empathy. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I suppose more the more I've gone on the journey with theatre and making work I, I really feel that what we deal in as as artists especially working in live theater is is vulnerability and yeah and how important I think I, I've realized I think I've come to this later in my career but because maybe a lot of the spaces that I was in when I was younger were not safe spaces but that how kind of also the sort of role of the duty of carers to also recognise that people learn in different ways and retain information in different ways. And fundamentally, what you're trying to get actors um, to do is to work to the best of their ability. And what I've learned massively is that that ability to retain text or to be connected to the character psychologically can happen in different ways for different people and you have to kind of manage just how their how that rehearsal process is could be different for so many different people and in a way the more that you can learn how that actor learns best and learn how that actor works best then the more kind of they will get out of the process and the more you'll get out of them if that makes sense, um, completely. And I th- and I and I think for me, 
potentially the the work that I've had to do on myself in getting information differently because recognizing that I have to receive it differently and I have to do it in a different way has maybe helped with my empathy and realizing that in other people as well possibly I love that that was that was absolutely going to be my next question so um say you're working on an incredibly emotive play with uh, four brilliant actors. So you're directing Hard Day's Journey in tonight. Eugene O'Neill, you know, there's mm. these four characters, in, incredibly raw emotionally, very different trajectories in terms of the characters. All of them had their own neuroses and psychological truths um, and resentments that they have towards each other. Um, and you know, I, I'm assuming you're going to have to set up a room that's, um, you know, it's going to be a, a safe space, as you put it. Are you, are you thinking about your own vulnerability as a director? Or, or do you have to be, I suppose, uh, an emotive rock for those actors? You know, um, mm. Are you going, should I share my, my vulnerabilities here? Or, or do I just empower them to feel safe? Yeah, I think it's, it's so kind of live in the moment, directing um, in that way, because... I think it really depends and I think you can really feel it I think you learn how to navigate and judge it the the more experience you gain and I've seen you know I've worked a lot as an assistant and associate director so I've worked with a lot of very experienced directors and I think that's one thing that so many of them have in common is to kind of know when it's helpful to empathize and share your experience and when actually somebody needs to find that for themselves yeah. or where, you know, and it, it can be just as easily be supportive and helpful as it can be kind of reductive and um, leading. So, <laughs> so it's like, it, it's such a tightrope to balance. And again, yeah. different actors have different responses. You know, there are, there are a lot of actors who work kind of inside out so they use a lot of draw on a lot of their own emotional experience and and using that type of language with them is helpful you know you connecting and drawing on um experiences that you've had in order to get them to to understand where you're coming from can be really useful and then some actors are much more outside in so they may want actually like things that feel further away more hard research more kind of um not so you know more kind of facts figures more sort of like also practical (laughs) things where am I in the space where's the door where's the window you know it's so interesting what different people need in order to kind of build that world inside their own minds yeah you're completely right I mean there's you were saying you know to the answer to the role of a director that there's it's inherently a, a decision making role but I, I think what you're also saying is that there's a deafness of touch you, there's there's a real suppleness that a, a great director has and oftentimes I've found the there's almost when they are leading you you know down to to make a decision um there's there's often no um there's no difference um between that and when they're they're very definitely coaxing out something else from you you know that there's 
you know, the, the, sometimes a director definitely wants something. It might be a move or, or you know, across the stage or whatever it is. Mm. And then invariably, um, the really great directors I've worked with are going, um, I'm going to leave the space for something I, I didn't even imagine, you know, that, that mm. you might, that might happen, that might develop in this moment right now. And, and that will be something that no one visualised on the page. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, you want to be surprised, I think, as a director, if you've made all of those choices beforehand, then where is the collaboration? Yeah. And and for me, I, I think I've learned, again, like so many different things. But one thing is the more prepared I am, the more I know the text inside and out, the more I've imagined the multitude of possibilities, the more safe I feel and open I am to the actors making their own choices because I have a sense of where those paths will lead and whether yeah. or not that that will, I suppose, fall into the concept, whether it will whether it will work. And sometimes, you know, an actor will go off-road and you don't know where they're going, but you've all of the ways in which you've um, worked together and collaborated together means that then you trust them, you know, so you also go on a journey with them and you take that leap of faith and you say, well, let's see, you know, because the reality is that you've built space in for that and you know that, you know, how far you're straying, I suppose, from the route and sometimes they'll just find a whole new way to get to almost exactly the same place and that that's <laughs> kind of, that's kind of amazing to watch as well, so... I really feel like the rehearsal room is a space to to fail thousands of times, you know, until you yes. find the the thing that feels right, and and so everybody has to have that space to to try and to fail, and so often that the the best choice is, is going to be a choice no one has thought of. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this this podcast is obviously called Words Fail Me, and oftentimes failure comes up um it doesn't matter who it is you know we've had sports sports people creatives uh entrepreneurs um so i'd love to hear more on on your feelings around failure um because of, of course people it has negative connotations but i don't think those are the terms in which you'd employ failure no well no i mean for me is i really feel like a, a I'm literally in a race in the rehearsal room to find all the wrong answers <laughs> in a way nice. because it's like you just want to turn them over, you know. You want to be able to go, yeah, we went down that road and we found this and this and this, but ultimately it was a dead end. So now we've, we've taken some things from there and we're, yeah. we're going over here now. Um, yeah. And it's like all of that kind of exploration, which you can call failure, I suppose. It's, it's like one of my favourite quotes is Grayson Perry creativity is mistakes yeah yeah and I love that so much because that to me that absolutely is what it is it's like well we did this mad thing and we all laughed about it and we all thought it was be it would be absolutely stupid which it was but we found this amazing thing out of it you know which yeah. might only be like just a moment in the production but might be something that everybody remembers because it's so kind of wild or left field um, and life is right like it's so messy and yes. unpredictable and it's like so often we're trying to capture that 
um, and and recreate it for the stage. And I always find this really fascinating, right? So when you try to, if you improvise movement, um, there'll be a kind of a wildness to that movement. But what happens when you try to set it is your brain automatically starts to order it. So it starts to like make it symmetrical and it starts to put it all in the same rhythm. And that becomes really boring to watch. (laughs) Yeah. And so for me, it's like you always, I think you're always trying to inject, I am anyway, a a small space for anarchy in the rehearsal room Um, because one, it's more fun and yeah. <laughs> and to ultimately people are going to do things that are stupid say the wrong thing be embarrassing and people need yeah. to feel that it it's okay because it is okay because um if we don't do that then we're not going to find the good stuff absolutely not and that makes me think of that um great katie mitchell quote and she's saying uh, there is no good or bad there's only what's interesting and what's not yeah right yeah exactly that's that, and that's, you know i think that's certainly a way to to think about creating anything you know um for you the artist there's there's only what's interesting and what not you know good or bad shouldn't really come into it um or else you're not thinking you know it's death you know it's death for for creating something you're, you're thinking about it as a critic as opposed to um a creative so um they often say and and they're right they um that 90 percent of a director's job is casting and i know they often use that really in, in film and tv but um mm. I, I i've been in rooms and i'm sure you've been in rooms with um actors who are not about the anarchy in the room you know they get the script yeah. <laughs> they made their decisions um, they made the decisions the first time they read it you know um invariably actors they read the script and they give the greatest performance they're going to give in their heads before they even start rehearsals. You know, they're thinking about all the accolades they're going to get at the end of it. Oh, my God, what an Olivier winning performance that was. Um, but um, if you're brave and if, you, if you're if game, you know, for um, that anarchy in, in the room, it could even be better than that. But there are some actors who, who just, you know, they've made the decisions and it's not going to change their mind. Are you wary of that? You know, when you're casting for something, are you, are you looking for those things... Uh, in an actor when they're auditioning? I think for me, in an audition situation, I suppose I'm always looking for somebody who's going to go on the journey with me. Um, You know, so quite often, like when you start an audition and there's a sort of (laughs) bit of chat at the beginning, I think for me it's always really telling. I feel like the people who want to talk about the character and want to talk about the play and have questions or ideas or thoughts. And I'm never, I always think that that's great. And I, I so I'm not necessarily worried about people having an idea of, of how it might be, even if that idea is different to mine. But then I feel like when we're playing with the test, which is what I, I often try to do in an audition situation, it, it's like, I want some someone I want to feel like we're going to try things together and we're yes. not going to judge together in that moment you know that's absolutely wrong let's not do that it's like it has to be a journey and so where I found it difficult with some actors is where I feel the resistance and the block to want to try something that feels very counter 
to what they have in their heads because for me it's like there has to be a spirit of play even if you end up coming back to that performance and that's happened to me in through a rehearsal process you know that actually that first instinct was right and that characterization actually is just nail on the head the first time It, it can happen but you need space for the other actor, the other actors, the people on stage around them to to influence this person too, as well as my voice. There's also the voice of all these other characters that have to, to be listened to. And yeah. so there needs to be, I suppose, an active listening, which is what, what I'm looking for and, and a spirit of, of play. Um, and I think it's tricky because I do think sometimes you can be in an audition situation and I've asked you to do something which is just a terrible instruction. It's just not the right thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And for me, it's like I can make mistakes absolutely too. Like, oh, yeah, I thought we could try that and that, oh, that was bad, wasn't it? It wasn't quite, that wasn't quite right or, okay, it's not quite yeah. right, but maybe we'll just stay there for a bit to see what else comes up. And I suppose I'm always looking for, for a little bit of, of that, spirit of exploration how is it that, that you approach text which you know can obviously be a problem for for dyslexic people um and and engendering that spirit of play amongst your actors in the rehearsal room mm. well yeah I mean I think for me even from the beginning even like reading for me can be a bit problematic uh I, and I find that having the text read aloud it just immediately lifts it off the page for me. It becomes something else. So that's something that I've I've employed from the beginning. And I was very lucky because I did a lot of uh, youth theatre. So I sort of always had this sort of ready access to, <laughs> to theatre makers who were really happy to, like, read scripts with me and kind of being able to hear it is great. And I also think something happens to the body as well in space like so straight away for me even at the beginning of rehearsals even in the first rehearsal I will do a lot of time at the table but then I'll straight away be up even the first time we're looking at the scene because I want to know what it feels like in the body and I don't like all the decisions to be made from a headspace um and, and 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 so for me it's like how does it how does keeping connected I suppose to how it feels in the space on the board in the body spoken aloud as well as okay then let's come back to the page and let's see what is happening on that line or where did where do we feel like the shift happened when we were physically in the space and now let's come back down to the paper so I do quite a lot of that especially in the early rehearsals of just if I feel blocked, if I feel stuck, if I feel like something isn't working for me on the page, I try to do that problem solving with the actors on its feet. And I often try to do improvisations. I, I find improvisations so, so helpful because yeah. we need to understand what we're saying, right? <laughs> like, yeah. and, that, and that begins with thoughts. And sometimes the text isn't giving you all the answers that you need. It's just giving you like the tip of the iceberg. You know, writers have spent a long time crafting these words to just give you the edited version. But underneath is like a whole mountain of of thoughts 
and memories and reasons why we got there so I often find like filling in the gaps with the memories sometimes really helpful like if you know this is an argument that you've had many times but we only hear it this one time in the play then we should probably play that argument out you know a few different times um with the actors improvising that or sometimes in order to know how different a conversation is to one that would normally happen you need to to create the normalized version right the the conversation how it normally goes and then why this conversation that's happening now feels so different to those characters um and I also find it's a way again for me the more I feel like I can build the world under the text the more the text starts to make sense. Yeah, completely. I love, I love this. So, you know, what everyone who isn't an actor or director has to understand is that, you know, texts are dumb. They're, they're just a skeleton. And what you really have to do as an actor to get character thoughts, which takes so long to build. It's all about this world building that you're talking about where suddenly a character thought can just come from nothing. You know, you've done mm-hmm. all your work. You know who your character is. We've all we've got up. We've improvised. We've we've got it. We've got it into our bodies, mm. and then a character thought can come, and it's one of the most beautiful moments. It's it, along with it being in a sort of free flow state. You know, when you're on stage, um, and you're not thinking about okay, I need to move over there on this line, and I need to you know my line's coming up. Um, mm. Those those sorts of things where you're thinking about what comes next after this scene in terms of my want, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from this. I'm going towards that. Um, and, and it's, it's something that's alive and in the scene or, or within the world. It's, it's so glorious and it takes, yeah. it takes the work that you're talking about. It takes um, improvisation. It, it takes um, trying things out, failing. So yeah, and sometimes what I find really interesting to me as well is like this this question of failing or mistakes or, or things that feel wrong. They for me are like the the clues to getting into the text. Because yeah. if we're if we're if say two actors are delivering a scene and then it's like my big question that I'm asking myself all the time as I'm watching is, do I believe them? Do I believe yeah. you? Do I believe you? So when I hear a line and I don't believe you. And then that can be a place to go, okay, why don't I believe you? What's going on for you? What are you thinking about? What's happening when you're saying that line? And, and more often than not, there, there isn't enough of a, a thought happening. <laughs> there isn't enough of a yeah. connection that, or that yeah. the actor hasn't quite understood where that is coming from or they haven't explored it um, deeply enough or they're in between two thoughts you know, which can often happen. Like, I'm trying to play this and this. And it's like, again, it's like you have to commit to to one or the other in that moment, just in the way that, of course, we're complicated. Everything can have its own place in its own time. But those things layered on top of each other create a confusion to the audience because we are unsure about where you are. So for me, it's just like, actually, the places where it doesn't work, the places where it feels counterintuitive or wrong, or, yeah, and quite often that's what what you'll get back from an actor. Yeah, I don't know what I was, I don't know what I'm supposed to be thinking there, or I don't know quite what's going on. And it's like, oh, great. 
great because we can then think about it and make a decision and look at why that's coming there and then that quite often unlocks other parts of the text because you're you look then for the answer well have we ever talked about this you know before have we ever had a thought that's connected to this before and then you find the other stepping stones through the text to get you there yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there if you if you want to reduce it to its most simple form, it's about believability. Do I believe these two characters and I, do I believe what comes out of their mouth? And do they believe it? It becomes, yeah. it's, it's all about belief. I mean, obviously, um, it takes a great deal of work and it takes talent um, to be able to do that. But when you want to reduce it to its simplest form, it's all about, it's all about belief. Yeah, and, and almost always, if you are thinking the thought, I will believe you. <laughs> yeah. I, also, I also think that. I'm also like, if you really commit to thinking that, I believe that you're thinking that. <laughs> because you are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's where the work is. You've got to find where, where your belief in, you, in, in yourself drops out for whatever reason. And it, and it can be, there's so many challenges. You know, if you're doing Chekhov, for example, you've got to try and get your head into this, into the headspace of, you know, what's it like turn of the century Russian person living on a massive estate? What What is that, you know, for this particular mm. line? Um, and that's often where the work is. And I often find that, I don't know about, about you, but like some British actors, sometimes they can get into a trap of acting Chekhov like um, it's Oscar Wilde, mm. you know, and they're, they're, they're sort of giving English aristocracy as opposed to try and invest time in, in the realities of like being a Russian at that time. Um, I, you, you might have seen them, but it's like when the Bolshoi come or the Marley Theatre Company come to um, one of the West End theatres and they show one of the shows that they've done for like eight years or something. <laughs> and the level of work, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm. So they do stuff like, um, so Lev Dodin, who's the artistic director, he, he cast, I forget what her name is, but in Uncle Vanya, Vanya the great character that's missing from that is his sister who he talks about who he loves and mm. they employed an actress because they, of course, they rehearsed for eight months. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and they employed an actress just to come in and improvise as Vanya's sister so wow. that they could yeah, essentially have this huge wealth of, of um, character thoughts around and, and experiences around this, uh, this character. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's like building the world and this is what I find so kind of exciting about um theater for me right now as well as that I just feel like the world that we get to construct is totally up to us in that you know rehearsal room those creatives those actors so even if you are doing something like Chekhov but you decide that you want to transpose it um, you know, to a Caribbean island, for example, you can, yeah. as long as you build the world, as yeah. long as you really commit to what the world is, what the rules are. And this is where I think is really exciting is that for me, it's not so much about like the right and wrong way of doing things. It's about like a thorough investigation and exploration of that thing and yes. committing to your own rules and um, not breaking your own inner logic, you know? So it's like, yeah. I, for me, that's always my favourite 
work that I see is just where I feel like an idea has been so fully committed to and all the details of that world have been thought through and they make sense to itself so even if it's you know science fiction or you know it's set on another planet or in a different country that I have no idea whether it's authentic or not everything makes sense into onto itself so the authenticity is built because the integrity is built in all those decisions that get made around accent, around design, around um, memories and thought processes. And uh, yeah, and that's what's so kind of exciting. I think being a director is that you kind of get to construct that, you get to imagine and and build that and bring everybody in to, to help collaborate, to kind of build this this world <laughs> absolutely i love that that's it's it's a richness that you're trying to create uh, a nuance uh, uh, you know a, a great this this great quote from drama school comes back to me is that theater is not a place where you go to eat as the actor it's where you are eaten so you're making oh, wow. yourself as tasty for the audience as possible you know you're not going there to indulge some sense of um your own you know egocentricity where you're you're saying, okay, look at me, I'm talented. It's it's um come and, and devour this incredible performance or you know, this 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 set or listen to this music. And it mm. it really does feel like a essential experience. I think that's one of the the worst things that you can say about productions is that it was flimsy, you know, the the mm. the world wasn't realized. I didn't believe uh, the relationships, I didn't believe the characterizations, you know, it, it really feels like there's a it's rushed and everyone has more or less the same time. You have about two weeks, three weeks, or if you're at the national, like six weeks, but it's what you do with your time. It's how you, how you manage your time. And you've talked about that time management being key for you. And I just wondered whether, is that because of dyslexia or is that just, yeah, I mean, that is, free? there are certain things that I do think I, I've been working in the theater for so long now that I, kind of I've retrained myself completely but I was terrible with time management when I started really really bad and I don't know whether that's the dyslexia or or just who I am um but but time management is so key because what you realize and this is goes back to you know the very basic job of making sure that everybody's safe making sure that they say the words that they stand in the right places that everybody can do their job if you don't manage your time correctly you can make the production unsafe you can make it really difficult for people to do their jobs and you can build an atmosphere of distrust you know and fundamentally what you you know time is a really equalizing thing like we all all our time is precious and so if I'm constantly running late on my calls and I'm making people wait around for when their call's supposed to start or they're finishing late, then they, the feeling starts to become that my time is more important than theirs and, yeah. and that I'm not valuing people's time equally. And so for me, it, it's, it's a really great way for everybody to feel secure in knowing that they're going to be safe that the, yeah. they're going to have enough time, that none of their scenes are going to be rushed and that there's not going to be a disparity between how much time I've spent 
on one thing versus another thing. Of course, there always is because some things take much longer than others. But as long as you run to time and as long as your calls are structured in a way that makes everybody feel secure, it's not going to... it's not going to create a problem in it in and of itself, which it really can. And also, it's live theatre and anything can go wrong. So the amount of times I've been on productions where the set isn't ready, where the the power, the desk has failed, where the mechanism for the floor didn't work, where there's a flood. <laughs> you know, it's like so many things can go wrong. Your lead is sick. You know, you have to not only be great with your time, but you have to build in time for things to go wrong because they will. (laughs) And you will never know what. But you still have to get the production up on time safely. (laughs) You do. I mean, it it sounds also that it's, it's about respect. That's you respecting people's time as much as yours. You know, you're not saying like, well, I'm the decision maker here. I'm the one who's, uh, you know, leading this. So... You know, I call the shots. No, it feels like you're trying to imbue your company with a sense of respect that their time is as important as yours. Ideally, yeah. Um, I want to ask you two questions just to finish. Um, So I want to ask you um, how you choose a play or a project. You know, you're looking for something specific and then then what your dream, your dream show right now, because I'm sure it will change. But right now, what your dream show would be to direct? You know, if the National came along tomorrow and we're like, Miranda, listen, here's all the money in the world. Cast who you want. Um, go for it. What do you want to do? <laughs> Brilliant. Um, sorry, you're going to have to give me the first question again. You just made me really... My imagination. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fault. So, um, I mean, you can, you know, listen, you can combine them both. So it was, how do you choose a, a play or a project? A play, okay, great, great. And then your dream yeah. one. Okay, fabulous. Yeah, great questions. Um, oh, choosing a project is so hard. I mean, in truth, there's like probably like 15 productions um, that I want to do that have been on a list, for, some of them for like 12 years, <laughs> some of them um, more recently. But what, and it really can happen in lots of different ways, but fundamentally it's a, it's a an idea or a play that just won't leave me alone is is basically what, <laughs> what happens yeah. is it just that <laughs> it like nags at me um so whenever I'm trying to do other things or think about other things it's just like very persistent so um one production that I have been um thinking dreaming on for a long time is a kind of adaptation of The Little Mermaid which I've probably nice. been thinking about since I was tiny tiny um <laughs> because I think I always felt both kind of absolutely captivated by the story and also had so many questions uh, and felt quite robbed, I think, as a young woman um, of a heroine that had no voice. Um, And so, so it sort of plagued me. And then I think combined with thinking about what would a mermaid really think about living in our oceans right now? And uh, I thought, well, you know, they would be choked and they'd be appalled probably at what we're doing as a human species. Um, yeah. So it sort of has grown into a, a whole story about um, climate change and about a young woman, I suppose, a young fish in the sea wanting to make a big change 
to um, the the toxicity that's like all around her um, and wanting to give her back her voice, I suppose, yeah. is what I've ha- has also been plaguing me. So again, what's interesting is that over the years, I've collected creatives for that project, still growing it, still not sure where it will find its home. Um, but it's got, you know, now it has a kind of like Afrobeat musical score to it. And it's nice. it, it's grown its own kind of life. Um, so I'm still waiting for that fish to land. Um, and then the, the project that I'm just absolutely desperate to do is uh, a show that closed literally just before the pandemic, which is um, Rockets and Blue Lights, which closed before it even opened. Um, uh. And it's it's Winsome Pinnock's play, who is just an incredible, incredible playwright who has spent so much time and energy and, and love in kind of researching the transatlantic slave trade and looking at our shared history and responsibility in Britain for knowing and, and kind of sharing this history. And she's written the most beautiful, complicated web of a, a story um, which took a long time to build into a production and kind of has the most beautiful cast uh, who never really got to do the thing that, that we all worked so hard on. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I, you know, it transferred to radio, actually, to BBC Three as part of the lockdown festival, which was great. Um, but I'm just desperate to see it on the stage and I, I don't think it will leave me alone until I've achieved that. <laughs> And and is there any hope, you know, um, of, of that of that happening? There's always hope, Jude. Yes. <laughs> There's yes. always hope. Yeah, that's all we have. Um, so yes, it will happen. And that's what's interesting too. I think for me is that I've realised that, you know, ideas. Some ideas come and go. Some are very fleeting. The ones that have power are the ones that stay, and won't leave. And then they force you to work on them. And then that work forces, I think, other people to take notice and ultimately, eventually, to give it the time and resource that it needs because you've committed first the time and the resource to growing it. Yeah, absolutely. That is a beautiful note to end on. So I want to say thank you so much. Um, You were wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Jude. It was so lovely to just chat. (laughs) Thank you so much. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Monk-McGowan. My guest today was the director, Miranda Cromwell. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please go rate, subscribe, and leave us a little review. Thank you.